You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. When I started seminary, um, I had a professor, Dr. Peter Rogers, who was teaching a class on 1 Peter, and it was my first seminary class, and I thought it was the coolest class ever, and he would begin every class with this really beautiful prayer about studying the Bible. And I thought to myself, that, that's an amazing prayer. I, he wrote that. That's amazing. Like I should. And so one time he was praying this prayer and I was trying to scribble it down while he was praying it. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, is this right? Because I wanted to make sure I got this. And he said, oh, Sean, um, that's not, I didn't write that. That comes from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, I'm, you know, he, he was an Episcopal priest and he was praying this from memory and it's beautiful. And it's always struck me. So was, and it's about the Bible actually. And so uh, it's, on, yeah, exactly. It's on page 236. It's proper 28. You'll hear it in uh, close in November. Uh, right at the end of the year, right before we hit Advent, you'll hear this prayer. And it feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But I wanted to offer it uh, for us this morning as we study scripture together. It is like full, it is like a book of prayer that's like common to us. Thank you, Mark. It's true. I love the energy about the book of common prayer. That's so good. Way to go. Let's pray then. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And have some pizza as we begin. Well, good morning. This is the second section of, second session of our class to be a Christian, covering, um, the Catechism Part 2. And last week, if you missed it, don't worry, it's, on, it's recorded and on our podcast, so you can grab it and go catch up with us. Um, just a few, before we dive in, just a few kind of housekeeping and format things, just reminders. The class is Q&A, and we read the questions together and recite answers. Why do we do that? Um, so that we can drone on about the right answers no, but actually the exercise of saying these things out loud is actually really helpful for us in our learning. Another really helpful for, thing for us as we learn theology is to sing. Um, so heads up, if you don't want to sing, I'm going to make us stand and sing a hymn next week. Uh, so come ready to sing. Well, you guys have just finished singing, so you don't have a problem with that. But we're going to sing because actually singing is proven to help like open us up to learning. It's, help, it's a helpful tool to prep for us for learning. So uh, we're going to do that next week. I'm going to, as we go through the catechism, uh, going to be asking the question, phrasing the question, and then we will read the answers together in response, and then we'll, I'll explain a little bit and dive in and move on. Um, so please, if you have questions, genuinely questions, please raise your hand and ask those questions. If you are afraid to ask questions, you may write them down and give them to me later, and I can follow up with you. That's not a problem either. Uh, we have so much to cover today, so I want to try as much as possible to avoid all the tempting rabbit trails that we're going to find today. We can do it. It's going to be tough, but we can do it. Um, and I also had a question for you all. 
I think this time after the service works with lunch, uh, but there's also been the idea of doing this before the service, like at 9, 9 to 9.45. Um, does anyone have a really strong opinion about that? Can't help set up. Can't help set up, but, but it is at 9. And then after church, you can go to lunch. I would love that. You would love that. In a different room. In a different room. Yeah, totally, yeah. Yes. I will make sure there's donuts if we do it in the morning. Okay, well, um, if you have thoughts about that, part of this rhythm that Rez is learning, uh, we are still trying to figure out. So we've done this. This is the second time we've done this since it's been after the service. But if you guys are thinking, you know what, we could actually, like, I can barely get half the church to show up on time in the morning, so I'm wondering if that wouldn't work. So... Um, but let's do this. Let's think about it. Get a hold of me if you guys have some opinions about this, okay? All right. Section two. Session two. Concerning Holy Scripture. We're on question 26. And um, Eric, will you go look in that box for copies of the catechism? And if you don't have a copy of the catechism, we'll get you one. Hang in there. And it's all yours. But let's just jump in. Y'all ready to answer? Question 26. What is Holy Scripture? Holy Scripture is God's word written, given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and his acts in human history and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. There's a reference for 2 Timothy 3.16 that we're going to pick up uh, on question 31 in just a little bit. What does this assume, I think, is a really interesting question. Before we jump into the details of this answer, we should, we should note that this assumes that God speaks, that God reveals himself, which is not nothing. This is a huge claim, that God reveals himself, that he speaks, let alone in a written way in Holy Scripture. We see this in our answer, that God, there's this claim that um, this is the scriptures is God's word written, given by the Holy Spirit. How? Through the prophets and the apostles as revelation. And this is, this is actually working against um, an ancient heresy that he has revealed himself in human history and is therefore the church's final authority. God did not, for instance, wind up the clock of the cosmos and history and then step back and let it go and let it run its course. But this Christian claim is actually saying that God is involved in human history and has revealed himself in history. That's profound. And he's done that not abstractly or in just like the hearts of people, but he's done that through particular prophets and apostles. There are authoritative voices throughout human history through which God has revealed himself. Now, the church has looked back at this history and we'll get to, into more of this later, and recognized that there is an authoritative revelation of God through history, through certain prophets and through certain apostles. And this authority, this voice that comes to us in real human history, I think that's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing to me that God reveals himself through actual human history, and even today. But he does. That collective voice of the prophets and the apostles in, that's revealed in his word written 
is actually the church's final authority. We talked about this last time, that a distinctive that Anglicans uphold, this was given to us in like 1886. There was this conference in Chicago. It's called the Chicago Lambent uh, Conference, and they came up with this, what they called, this is huge words, I'm sorry, quadrilateral. And one of the points from this conference in 1886 was to, was to explicitly state something that the church has um, upheld for throughout its history, um, and especially Anglicans bring this to the fore in saying that the scriptures are actually, contain all things necessary for salvation, which is super, super important. And in this way, tradition, our preferences for worship, like our debates about certain theological points, all of that has to come underneath God's word written. It submits to the final authority, which is the scriptures, the revelation of God. Does that make sense, people? Okay. Now, um, and this, and I, I already said this, but I just want to underscore this. This is like an Anglican distinctive. If you go to a, a, like a, a, an ordination service for an Anglican deacon or a priest, um, one thing that they, you'll see them as they lay on their face, you know, in the service, one of the things that they not only confess to be true, but also sign a document saying, I actually believe this is true, is things like what books are contained in the Holy Scriptures and are, does Scripture contain everything necessary for salvation? So, for instance, if um, someone comes to me and says, Sean, what do I need to do to be saved? And I say something to them that they have to believe that isn't included in the Bible, then I'm, I'm like not in safe territory. Anglicans will say, we only commend, teach, give to people what we find in scripture as necessary to salvation. There's a lot of other things that we believe that aren't necessarily in scripture really explicitly. Um, but those things that are necessary to salvation, we find in scripture. Okay, question 27. What books are contained in Holy Scripture? The 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament form the whole of Holy Scripture, which is also called the Bible and the canon. By the way, do you notice these references in here uh, about the articles of religion? Articles of religion 6, articles of religion 20 in the previous question. Um, these articles of religion are found in your prayer books, but they're also, it's just a historic document that is one of those founding um, documents of the Anglican, like, DNA. Outlines significant parts of Anglican doctrine and belief. But I want you to also read them as a historical document, because they, and they have to be read in their historical context, or else they will be, end up, like, giving us some really strange conclusions um, about things like the monarchy and um, transubstantiation or um, other things that were really contemporary at the time that they are responding to. So we got to read that in light of the context, but they still serve for us as an Anglican um, shape of our theology. So that's what, that's what those references um, are pointing to. Um, most of scripture is written by the end of the first century. There's a lot of debate around when certain things are written. Um, but like a, a lot of the epistles written in the mid-50s of the first century, the Gospel of John, the 90s, again, there's debate, there's argument about this. Um, there's actually a ton of scholarship around um, these fragments and these manuscripts that we find in the early church. And, I, and I, I want to kind of pull the veil back on this a little bit because um, 
I remember when I found this out, I was like, man, there's some serious and very, very careful thought going into what we call Holy Scripture. Like some serious scrutiny. Um, I have, I should have brought it with me, but I have Greek New Testaments, and I can bring it, that have all of these footnotes and margin notes that show, hey, and, and you might see this in some of your English Bibles, you'll, you'll see a footnote that's like, in other manuscripts, we ha- find evidence that this is uh, uh, us instead of you, or you know things like this, like minor discrepancies. Um, and what's really interesting is to see this inventory, this catalog of um, evidence that we find in these early church manuscripts that have been collected and almost like scientifically or almost mathematically saying most of the manuscripts and most of the authoritative early manuscripts indicate this reading. And so we're going to prefer that reading over this other obscure reading that we don't have a lot of support for. There's a ton of this um, exegetical, um, like literary cris- uh, historical criticism of the text that's fascinating. There's, there's all kinds of like, if you open up the hood, there's a lot of guts in there. Um, but these 39 books of the Old Testament and these 27 books of the New Testament um, have been, uh, through history, given to us. I think about what I'm saying here. Throughout the, through history, given to us as Holy Scripture, as God's revelation. Again, pulling from the fact that God reveals himself through history. King, you all know the King James Bible? You ever heard of that one? With all like the weird translations and the dragons and the unicorns in it and stuff. There's some dragons and unicorns. It's pretty fun. Um, King James authorized this version. And you know what was included in the, King, the first authorized King James Bible? Was the Apocrypha. Interesting. Why do we, what's the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha, we talked about it last time, are these um, other early texts that the church has um, recognized as helpful and interesting and part of the time, but not authoritative in determining doctrine. But they're still edifying. There's still like other sources for us to use and read, and we can even read them on Sunday. But these early, the first King James authorized the, with the Apocrypha, Apocrypha included. Why? Because it was part of the Bible. Wait a second. How is that part of the Bible? One of the terms that they kind of, in the catechism here, stitched together here is the Bible and the canon. What's the difference between the two? The canon, canon, all it means is like a, um, kind of like a, a read or a, a ruler, a rule, like a kind of a standard. Here's what is authoritative. That's what we talk, call the canon. Um, but the Bible is really just these collection of um, holy writ texts that come to us from the ancient church. So you can see how when we say that the Old Testament and the New Testament as we have it are canon, they're authoritative to determine doctrine, it's still different and distinct from the Apocrypha, which are still like part of the collected texts of the early church, but not authoritative in a, in a sense of like determining doctrine. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, please. That's a really good question. I think uh, there's not a simple qu- answer to that. So I won't take a whack at it, but I will say, um, how do you say this? I don't know. And I think actually that's, that's where the, the church lands on it, to say it's not, it's not unhelpful, but it's not authoritative in the same sense as the canon. And so where there's like some uncertainty there, they don't go, well, but let's just let them in and who cares, you know. They say, let's hold off on that. It's a different kind of category of holy writ of ancient scriptures that's different than these authoritative texts that we now recognize in the biblical canon. 
You see what I'm saying? So it's kind of gray, but, but that's kind of why they're actually left out, to be honest. Stephen. So to, to interpret that passage is why I'm putting it in 31. We have to talk about interpretation. Because even when Timothy's writing this, what scriptures is he talking about? Right? It's a great question. And is that all that it means? Literally what Timothy's talking about? Or, uh, or Paul's talking about? Or is it like, um, can it mean more after the fact of the author writing it? Interesting question, Stephen. We're going to get to that question 31. Good setup, my man. Let's keep going because there's still, <laughs> this, we're just going to be walking through this minefield of treasures, people, and we got to, but it, it'll, some of this stuff will come. Just hang in there. Question 28. Let's do this together. The, what is the Old Testament? The Old Testament contains the record of God's creation of all things, mankind's original disobedience, God's calling of Israel to be his people, God's law, God's wisdom, God's saving deeds, and the teaching of God's prophets. The Old Testament points to Christ, revealing God's intentions to redeem and reconcile the world through Christ. Amen to that. Um, let's, let, let's inspect this together. What, what sticks out to y'all in this answer? Yeah. Even the Old Testament points to Christ. That is a significant uh, point there. We're going to actually get to this. His intention to redeem and reconcile. Yeah. His intention to redeem and reconcile. That's really good. His saving deeds. His saving deeds, like throughout history, the things he's done, right? Totally. You know what stands out to me is um, the word record. Does that stick out to you? The Old Testament contains the record of God's creation of all things and this whole list of things. So there's, there's a few things here. Um, the, the, the fact that um, God's saving deeds have been recorded is a, is a very fascinating fact. How have, has God's deeds been recorded? Who wrote them down? Um, and really, who was responsible for the oral tradition before these things were written down? Interesting. Again, um, the scriptures weren't just floating down from the clouds, already written, but have actually been revealed through human beings in history who have witnessed things, told stories, and passed those stories along and become Holy Scripture. That if you think about this, for some, that fact alone can be disheartening or um, inciting doubt. Like, well, how reliable is it then? Fair point. On the other hand, and for me, I look at that and say, and we still have God's revelation even despite all of that? That is miraculous. <laughs> That's crazy. How amazing. And this record um, it includes things like the creation of all things, um, their disobedience just three chapters later in Genesis, Genesis 3, God's calling of Israel to be his people, his law, his wisdom, his saving deeds, and the teaching through the prophets. 
This Old Testament record does not describe a God that is different from the God in the New Testament. That's another heresy that's dealt with. We're over that. This is the same God. This is the same God. And so when we read the Old Testament, it's super important that we realize that we can read the Old Testament as a revelation that is pointing to Christ. Christ is in the Old Testament, we can say, as the church. Wait a second, but isn't this imposing something on top of the text that isn't there will be like modern textual criticism of this. Fair enough, whatever. But modern textual critics, the, the scriptures don't belong to you, they belong to the church. And the church um, like discerns more than just this like flat literal historical reading. There's more senses to our reading of scripture than just um, this kind of l- hyper literal historical reading. Yes, that's important, and that's actually fundamental, but we're not imposing Christ. Um, in in, in um, Augustine, he says uh, that we find um, the, the well, actually, we're going to quote this in a minute, I think. Should I spoil it? Maybe I won't spoil it. I'll leave it. Augustine has a great quote on this. I won't spoil it. It's coming on the next page. But we don't see um, Christ, like, embroidered on top of the text as if he wasn't there, but as uh, one of my favorite Hero theologians, Henri de Lubac, says that he is actually, we find Christ within the fabric of the Old Testament. He's revealed within it. It's in the stuff itself. It's not pasted on top. And so for us as Christians to read the Old Testament looking for Christ and seeing how the Old Testament is pointing us to Christ is actually to read the Old Testament well. That's, you're not like doing damage to that. Now, to read the Old Testament looking for Christ and looking for Christ alone all the time and never anything else, you will totally miss out on reading the Old Testament for itself. You should let the text read for itself in its own terms, in its own context, with its own historical setting. Knowing, though, as a Christian who's a member of the church and realizing that the church also reads this historic revelation in light of Christ pointing to him. So we've got actually a few senses, a few ways to read scripture that I think, is this the time to do this? Let me cover the New Testament, then I want to talk about So I've already touched on this briefly. What are the ways that we can actually read the Bible? There's not just a literal sense. There's not just this devotional, spiritual sense. There's like more to our interpretation of the Bible. So I'm going to time out on that. We're going to read the New Testament, and then I'll cover cover this uh, question that I just pointed at. Question 29, what is the New Testament? The New Testament contains the record of Jesus Christ's birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension the church's early ministry, the teaching of the apostles, and the revelation of Christ's coming eternal kingdom. So you notice back in 28 and 29, these questions, um, we are basically outlining what the creeds point us to. So the creeds are these concise statements that um, summarize or really encapsulate the content of the Old and New Testaments briefly for us. So, for instance, that second um, section of the creed talks about Jesus, his birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, even his coming kingdom. We see this, um, not paraphrased, but summarized for us in the creeds. Anything stand out to you guys in question 29's 29's answer? Someone said last week the creeds kind of skip over the life and the ministry of Jesus. Um, Like they don't explicitly call that out. Fair enough, but the New Testament uh, gives us that, thank God. Can you imagine a New Testament that didn't have, like, 
accounts, records of Jesus' life and ministry and his wanderings with the disciples and these random stories of healing and teaching. It wouldn't be much of a New Testament. Yeah. Bethany. And I, I can't resist. We've got to go into this. But like what Bethany just mentioned, she pointed to that Scripture has like different um, textual genres, right? There's poetry. There is um, kind of a, a newspaper account of, of events. Um, there is like didactic kind of teaching and um, like theology going on. There is narrative. There's like a story being told. So when we come to the Bible and we want to read it, um, and we should read it personally and even devotionally. That's good. I'm not going to knock on that. But I just want to like, I want to stretch us and take this a little deeper. We, we need to come to scripture and realize or recognize that there is a genre already at play in the writing of this text. So for instance, one of the huge debates about um, Genesis, for instance, is did God create the earth, uh, the heavens and the earth in seven days? Literally? What is that? Now part of the debate, I'm not going to get at that. I have an opinion, but whatever, um, part, what's behind the, what's driving this debate isn't really like this dogged commitment to Orthodox Christianity or not. It is a debate about genre. What is this text? Is it ancient Hebrew poetry? Whose point is that God created? <laughs> and in this masterfully poetic and beautiful way, describing this very historical and scientific event that really can't be described in a lab document. So we revert to poetry and dig out these like profound meanings. Hmm, maybe. Uh, what about Jonah and the whale? Is this just like fiction and poetry or is there like historical basis to this? Hmm. Uh, we may never know some of those things. Um, and guess what? That is actually okay. We can say, you know, I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. I'm a romantic, so I like to think that he was. And I think that that's amazing. I believe that a man was raised from the dead. It's not much of a, like a far cry to go, okay, and a guy was swallowed by a whale, right? Like, we believe in some incredible things. But for people to go, well, historically, we dug up some archaeological evidence that disproves that Jonah and the whale thing, we would not be ruined. We would say, okay, so what does that teach us? But it doesn't actually like derail the authority of scripture and the message that's coming across to us. Does that make sense? So, um, and I'm doing this kind of in a, a very broad stroke way, but I, what I want to, to build into you or to contribute, if it's not there already, is a non-anxious trust in the scriptures that isn't built on some sort of like wobbly little leg of literal historical um, proof. Does that make sense? Nor is it built on the wobbly leg of my own personal devotion and faith. Those are all good things. Um, but the church has like sturdy legs that aren't rocked and shaken that involve a concert of these different readings that we're, I promise I will get to them um, that are more than just this like thin reading either historically or devotionally or whatever. Does that make sense? Stephen. 
Yes, that's what I intend to say. Yes. Yes. Um, so, man, there's like a whole there's a whole conversation here. Yes, Stephen. There's more to it than just your own reading. And by the way, you can't read the Bible like without lenses either. So you can't come to the text um, like just experiencing the scriptures without filter, without interpretation. That you cannot do that. Um, why is that? Um, well, even the people who recorded who wrote the scriptures, um, could not do that. They were, yes, it was God-breathed, but this is a narrative. This is a lived experience in human history that God is working to reveal himself to, uh, through. And so we come to the text, likewise, in our own narrative, in our own time, in our own place, um, with our own little, like, sticks, you know, our own little things that we want to see in the text. And we've got to be aware that um, those things actually play into our reading. They influence the way we see the text. So how do we find ourselves, like what Stephen's describing, not leaning too heavily on, on either our own personal reading or some sort of like modernist uh, lens of reading scripture or hyper-literal kind of reading? Well, we read the scriptures with the church. We can read them with the church. And we could submit to authority beyond ourselves that is the church, which is really, really helpful. And we should note that sometimes the church has been wrong. But here's what's beautiful about this. Just because it's the church doesn't mean we're like not wrong. We, we have been wrong. Um, but the beauty of it is, in community, throughout history in the church, um, God still abides in his people and brings about that correction. Like, we've seen this in history, and I think he's still actually doing that. He's still renovating his church. Um, there's a whole other, like, I could give another caveat about that, but it doesn't tell us that we should, like, try and anticipate the, the, where history is headed and try and, like, uh, outwit God in the future and like get ahead of the church. No, don't do that either because you end up in really weird places too. Um, all this to say, there's a lot of complexity in our sitting down to read the Bible. And when we do it with the church, we're in, we're in safe territory. We're in good spot. So let's read question 30 and move on. How are the Old and New Testaments related to each other? Let's read. The Old Testament is to be read in light of Christ incarnate, crucified, and risen. And the New Testament is to be read in light of God's revelation to Israel. Here it is. As St. Augustine says, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Does anyone have, want to take a shot at what Augustine is saying here? Like, here's a really good example. Um, I forget exactly where it is. Where Paul says, like, you remember the rock that water sprang from? Christ is the rock. Um, Augustine's going, see what Paul's doing here? By the way, if I did that in seminary, um, I'd, I'd fail, right? They would fail me. But what Paul's doing here as an apostle, as an author of the New Testament, is actually exercising, well, I, I would have, you would fail in certain seminaries. In the seminary that I went to at Fuller, I w I, they would not have looked at that um, 
fondly. But what Paul's doing here when he says, like, Christ is the rock, or um, uh, like Christ is, or no, Peter, uh, baptism is the new circumcision. Uh, we're, we're seeing Christ, we're seeing these revelations of who God is in Christ in the lens of the old. We're seeing it like hidden in the Old, old Testament. And likewise, we would say that the, the mysteries, the truths of the Old Testament, we see them with clarity where? In the New Testament. What is this? This is like maybe mind-blowing for people. Who's the bread in the wilderness that comes from heaven, the manna from heaven? It's Jesus. What? Are you kidding me? You know, wow, yes. And, and we can read this um, and not just kind of haphazardly, but we can, again, read this with the church throughout history where the church has seen these, these figures and made these connections. Uh, one of the things that you would hear is like, now don't go looking for Jesus under every rock in the Old Testament. And to that I say, I don't know what I'd say to that. Um, but that's, an, I think, an overcorrection from a previous generation that, that like, like kind of is uncomfortable with this kind of reading of Scripture that has leaned more on our... Who relit our Paschal candle? Because I blew that out. You got you? Are you going Put your hand behind it and blow it out. We got, that puppy's got to last all year. I, I'm, I'm kind of concerned at its height at this point. Thank you, Stephen. Christ candle, done. Where were we? Sorry. So this whole, like, Jesus is the rock where the water comes, um, uh, the manna from heaven, all this business, this is called topology. T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. And um, you will see this kind of reading of the scriptures in the early church fathers. They do it like, like it's nobody's business. And it's actually really beautiful. It's pretty amazing. Um, what do I want to say here? Okay, so there's topology. Let's, let's do this. How can we read the scripture? Can we just like go looking for Jesus under every rock and read it however we want to read it um, because it sounds cool to say things like Jesus is a rock? Uh, yes and no. I'm pulling up some archives from a class that I taught about this that I want to share with you guys. Um, a, a really easy way to remember how to read the Bible, and you should probably write this down because it's like really helpful, life-changing. For me, it was. Uh, there are these four senses of Scripture that I want to outline for us. How to read the Bible. Four senses. One, there is the literal or historical meaning of the text. When I say the text, I mean the Scriptures. The text we're looking at. For instance, let's just say for the sake of this example, we're going to be in like um, Exodus, okay? We can look at the story of Exodus and go, historically, it's important that we recognize that this happened in its own right. Historically, there's some value here. This happened, okay? Now, what is, why does this help us read the Exodus? Because we actually now get to interpret the Exodus story in its own historical context. So when things happen in the Exodus, like uh, this strange Passover meal that for uh, 21st century Christians read and go, what's that about? We go, actually, these were Jews, and here's the tradition. This is where it came from. And uh, uh, or at that point, this was the first... Uh, uh, instantiation, instantiation of that meal, and here's how it was propagated, and this is what it meant, and this is how, over the oral tradition, the Jews passed this story along, and you can see why this is a big deal, and Jesus, and God said, do this, in, like, do this continually, so that you remember this night where I redeemed you. His, there was historical value in the, in the actual event, okay? There's this literal reading. 
Secondly, there's a Christological reading. Christological is a huge word. All it means is, uh, um, how does this point to Christ? How is this like a signpost saying Jesus, a neon flashing light saying, revealing Jesus? So for instance, in the Exodus, the manna from heaven. Jesus later says, you know that food that God fed you in the wilderness? Mary like picks up these stories and go, yeah, that bread from heaven? I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. Um, so he's not just being like cute with his metaphors. He's actually picking up these historical references and saying, these pointed to me. Now, pause right here. When I mentioned a, a term called topology before, this is super cool. Maybe this is nerdy, but whatever. In the Old Testament, the manna from heaven is the type, is the figure. It's kind of like the parable of sorts. Christ, when he says, I am the bread, he is the antitype or like the genuine thing, the thing that this is pointing to. So you have the sign and you have the thing and the reality itself, right? Right. So this is topology. This is saying, this is making a claim that in scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we have, it's full of this treasure chest of types that are pointing to Jesus, the reality of the person himself later. Yes. 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 The, and this is yeah yeah it goes on and on so but here's what's this is what this is why people get so nerded out about scripture i'm not kidding you could study this for the rest of your life and not cease to be nerded out about this because it's everywhere and it's beautiful and it's fascinating it is like no other book in this way um, there are all these like hidden treasures that point to God's saving deeds in the person of Jesus everywhere. And it's fascinating. And the fathers, the early church fathers, have been digging these up and writing about them. And you want to like see this in, in like ninja status kind of usage? Go look at like the sermons of John Chrysostom or any of the church, early church fathers. They are riffing on this like this is just how you do it. It's so normal. Um, and it's kind of in a lot of ways a lost art in a sense. This reading of topology. Um, or allegory, you could say. It's another way of saying it. So we have the literal reading. We have the Christological reading, right? This typological reading. Then you have the moral reading. Moral reading, or why not? Tropological reading. This is a question that it's asking. I know, I shouldn't even say these words, sorry. But it's there, I just want you guys to know. Uh, the moral reading. What fruit does this produce in the spiritual life? So this is a reading we're familiar with. When we read a text and we go, Jesus what are you saying to me? Holy Spirit, what, what is this, how does this come to bear on my life today um, in, in terms of like living a righteous life with you? What is the spiritual fruit that this brings about in my life? Um, the first Timothy passage that we referenced, we talked about it, it, scripture being useful for correction and rebuke, right? 
Um, that's the kind of questions that come here. What are, the, what are the ways the scripture is questioning me and rebuking me? We often come to interrogate the Bible, but the thing is, if you're reading it right, it's interrogating us. It's so easy for me to sit down and write a sermon and go, okay, we got this series called We Are Witnesses. We're in Eastertide, and this is how it's going to go down. And it's so easy to go, here's the point that I want to make with this text. And you can't get very far if you're studying it faithfully when the text flips the table on you and says, no, 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 no. I have something to say. And you're going to like rearrange your theme or your sermon series or whatever garbage you're doing right now to fit what the scriptures are saying. Um, So we want to be mindful of that. And even the scriptures, one of the things that's pressing when we stand to preach and read the Bible, sometimes it's like, oh, church, did you hear that? I think we need to make some changes in light of what scripture's telling us. That's the moral reading. Okay, and fourthly, so we have literal, Christological, moral, and the fourth is, let's say, mystical. That's a nice word, right? How does this open up to the end of time? It's kind of like a telescope into the future. God, where are you taking things? Where are you taking things? How do we see um, this scripture pointing us to the end of the age? So, for instance, we can read Genesis and the garden and see glimpses of where God's taking things. We can see the new, the, the, we can see Jerusalem. We can see King David, who, by the way, King David is a type. He was a historical figure, yes, but he's also a type of Christ, imperfect as he was. Moses was a type right? The serpent raised on a, on a staff in the wilderness that people look to and be healed um, is obviously a type that in John 3 we see again, just as the serpent was raised on a staff. For God so loved the world. John three sixteen happens, right? All these are types, right? So this is happening. Um, and all of these things, and more, most clearly we see, are pointing to the future, where God's taking things. Uh, we see this most clearly in the book of Revelation, for instance. That is this... Um, uh, like eschatological is the word, is the, the study of the eschaton, the future, the end times, the fulfillment of the age. Where's God taking things? Um, we can read the text in that sense. So we have four senses. We're off track a little bit, but I wanted to just present these to you because I think they're helpful. We should have all of these senses together, reading the scriptures together. If you lean on just one of these and never exercise the other, you're actually getting like a distorted view of the text of the scriptures. So you should like practice filling out your reading so that you can recognize the literal historical, you can see Christ in the text, you can see the moral bearing that it comes, that brings upon your life, and you can see where God is taking um, all of all things in the end of, of the end of the age. But these things work as a coherent whole, okay? So you don't need to like shift gears really roughly and mechanically between each mode. No, no, they kind of all work in harmony together as a coherent whole. Yes, Nicole. Right. So how do we reconcile the parts of the old scripture where God tells the Israelites to kill a whole nation? Yeah, to like commit a fantaside and infanticide and ethnically cleanse people. And um, how do we reconcile the fact that God drowned the world's population except for a few people? Whew, that's a tough one. Um, man, there's, yeah, it is a tough one. I'll say, uh, let me say this before I try and answer that. I don't know if we can totally reconcile that. Like, there's a lot about God that I just don't understand. Yeah. And he's God, and I'm not. So there's that. But uh, there's also the fact that um, the God is just. Um, 
it's easy, how about this? It's easier for us to see this characteristic of God when we want the justice that God is wanting to bring about. When we see crime in the world today and we say, God, where are you? Come, Lord Jesus, do something. It's easy for us to see God's heart of justice there because we're on, like, we've got his back, we think, right? It's a lot harder to see when we're on the other side of the barrel of his justice. Um, I don't want to, like, vet all of that, but I think that's actually pointing us in, a, in the right direction. Um, but again, those passages we should read not only literally, historically, but also Christologically. How does this point us to Christ? Do we see Jesus in any of this? Can you see Jesus in the flood? You know, or in this, like, in Joshua when they're conquering the land? Is Joshua a type of Jesus? Are these people types of um, those who oppose God, the adversary? Huh, how do we read this Christologically? How do we read this morally? Like, repentance is probably a big deal, and I should not take so lightly the fact that I need to, like, cooperate with the righteousness of God. And, like, I was once an enemy of God, and that is serious. Holy cow, that's serious. How serious? Read the Old Testament serious, you know? Um, so I think when we approach questions like that, and I, again, I can't like address all that, but I think that points us in the right direction. If we can come to stories like that and read it in the four senses, we'll stand a much better chance of reading it with the church and reading it faithfully than just going, well, the Old Testament's this angry God of justice and the New Testament's this nice God of love. Not true. You're actually, you're missing the coherent whole of scripture. Um, and when you, when you read in these four senses, it actually forces you to read uh, those, the, the both testaments um, a little bit more carefully and faithfully, I think. Because you're looking for Christ in the old and you're finding the old concealed in the new, right? You're finding them together. That's, I feels like a little bit of a cop out of an answer, but that's all I can do right now. But I'll, can I revisit that with you? Okay. Sorry, let's move on. Um, man, these are like heavy questions, people. What's the next question we're at here? 30. How are the old, is that right? Tim's like, 31, 34. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, yeah, well, you're right, Tim. 31. What does it mean that Holy Scripture is inspired? Holy Scripture is God-breathed, for the biblical authors wrote under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit to record God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 again, we see. Interesting. Can I, anybody have a Bible want to read that for us? Or do you want me to read it for us? All right, while Stephen's pulling it up, 316, 2 Timothy. God breathed. Sounds a lot like, so, um, man, there's all kinds of ways to illustrate this. God breathed, empowered by, filled with the breath of God. The Old Testament word for spirit or breath is ruach. And you can kind of like, it has this like, it sounds like what it is word. Um, and in the same way that God has like breathed life into humanity that was formed from the dust, God somehow breathes in this very, very mysterious and yet effective way to bring about some, some revelation of himself. So the reason I say this is because the poetics that we see in, for instance, God breathed into the dirt and made humanity, we would go, wait a second, does that mean that um, like we can deduce this scientific conclusion about how humanity began. You're totally missing the point. God breathed into the dirt, people. Holy cow, like out of nothing, God breathed and there was life. In the same way, we can look at 
the inspiration of scripture and, and, and avoid these like really thin conceptions about how scriptures come to us and step back and go, this is a mystery. This is complex. God breathed this. So it's authoritative, it's inspired, it's beautiful, and it's not something that I can like squeeze into a bumper sticker and understand super easily either. It's like amazing. Um, Stephen, have I stalled enough? You found it? Okay, give it to us. 316. What do you guys notice in that? Anything pop out? Inspired by God. Useful for all kinds of things. Like? Why? Verse 17, can you read that for us? Wow, so it's super important that we study the Bible and let it work on us not so that we can be like card-holding Christians, but that our lives would be seen as proficient and equipped for every good work. There's a use for hiding God's word in us, understanding it, studying it, because we become the kinds of people who go into the word equipped for every good work. Huh. There's like a lived reality to studying the scriptures. That's helpful. It's good. Uh, let's read question 32 because I think it's going to be helpful for us. What does it mean that the Bible is the word of God? Ooh, this is good. Because the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is rightly called the word of God written. God is revealed in his mighty works and in the incarnation of our Lord, but his works and his will are made known to us through the inspired words of scripture. God has spoken through the prophets and continues to speak through the Bible today. All right, this is reinforcing something like a lot of what we just covered. Does anything stick out that anyone wants to point out there before we jump on? Okay, let's try question 33. Why is Jesus Christ called the word of God? Ooh, this is interesting, right? You guys are geeking out, right? This is amazing. Super stoked about this. Stoked is a word in California that we use for um, excited. <laughs> what? It is for everything. Everybody's like, you use it for everything. Let's get stoked, people. Here we go. Question 33. Why is Jesus Christ called the Word of God? The fullness of God's revelation is found in Jesus Christ, who not only fulfills the scriptures, but is himself God's Word, the living expression of God's mind. The scriptures testify about him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. Yikes. Thank you, Jerome, on his commentary on Isaiah. Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Jerome is this hero because he translated the entire Bible into Latin, I think, all by himself, which is not a small deal. Um, you guys should try that. It's already, done. already Yeah, it's already done. So um, when I, where's, I don't have a Bible on me. Here we go. Let's pretend it's a Bible. This is a Bible. Um, we would go, this is the word of God, but we all know that it's actually a little bit more complicated than that, right? This is a translation of the word of God. Getting closer. Yes, because we have it in English, and it's a translation of an accumulation of the scriptures, and is God's word written. Yes, we believe that. Um, but actually, if we're going to get even closer to that, this is a translation of 
the testimony, the witness to the word of God gets us even closer. That's why we don't say all that on Sunday because that's like a mouthful, but that's actually like theologically true. This is a translation of a, the witness to, the testament to the word of God, who is who? Not an idea, oh my gosh, guys, this is like super important. Gnostics take this. Not an idea, not some hidden truths about the faith, but a person, like who existed in history, a person. Who is this person? This person is the word of God. God's intentions, his wisdom, his saving plan has become incarnate, enfleshed in the person of Jesus. And these texts, the Old Testament included, point to him, the word of God. Does that make sense? So, Why does what say mind of God? The catechism? Um, uh, John 1, I think, is probably what they're referencing. In the beginning was the word, uh, or the, the logos idea. It's more not just the word, but like the reasoning of God, kind of the mind of God, the, the divine wisdom of God. Logos, um, I believe, I'm not like a first century scholar or a Greek scholar, but logos is way more than just word. It's like reason, wisdom. So I think that's probably what it's getting at, at least that. Um, if not, like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and kind of the Old Testament as a whole in terms of like the prophets and the revelation of God and his wisdom through the prophets. I think it's, that sounds good to me. Question 34, answer? Oh, sorry, question. How should Holy Scripture be interpreted? Just as Holy Scripture was not given through private interpretation of things, so it must also be translated, read, preached, taught, and obeyed in its plain and canonical sense, respectful of the church's historic and consensual reading of it. It has to be translated, like I just said. Uh, Some of you could read it in its original language. That's cool. It has to be read. It's just not good enough for us to put it on the lectern and we get it once a week. that's listening to. It's good for us to read it for ourselves. It needs to be preached. It needs to be taught. And folks, it needs to be obeyed. This is the hard part, right? We can read, we all have more Bibles than any human in history has ever had Bibles. And it's so hard to obey the texts, the scriptures. And not just in some figurative sense, but in its canonical sense. Meaning reading scripture as a whole, as a uh, a canonical reading is a, is a reading of the Bible that doesn't just take one sentence out of a part of a text, but reads it in concert with the Old and New Testament texts that are available for us to understand it. So it's a canonical sense there. Respectful of the church's historic and consensual reading. We could say a Catholic reading of sorts. This is complicated, but in general, what this is saying is the church has an opinion about what the Bible is intending to say. And we should, we should read it respectful of their reading, of that reading, of scripture as well. Question 35 and 36 are pretty uh, connected, so let's, read, let's just read through both of those together. How should belief in, God, in the God of the Bible affect your life? As I prayerfully learn Holy Scripture, I should expect the Holy Spirit to use it to teach, rebuke, correct, and train me in the righteousness that God desires. This nourishes my soul toward the service of God and my neighbor. How should you use the Holy Scriptures in daily life? I should hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them so that by patience and strengthening through God's word, I may embrace and cling to the hope of everlasting life given to me in Jesus Christ. I should read and pray scripture daily that I may know God's truth and proclaim it clearly to the whole world.
read and pray <laughs> regularly and personally. Um, and this kind of um, devotion or this discipline is so hard when you're not into the Bible or when, you, and I'll just say this for me personally, when you don't expect God to speak to you through the Bible because you're going through some stuff or whatever, it's super hard to sit down and read the Bible for yourself. Like, it stinks. One of the reasons I'm an Anglican isn't because it's super easy to, like, have um, daily, uh, the daily office and this ordered prayer and all this stuff. That's, like, not natural for me. The reason I'm Anglican is because I need that so desperately because I'm, like, the opposite. Of that. I'm, like, fly by the seat of your pants. That's my tendency. So Anglicanism and really the church Catholic or its traditions lends to us some disciplines uh, for daily reading that help us not just to read a book or our favorite book, but to read um, an Old Testament, pray a psalm, to hear an epistle, to read the gospel, and daily to do these things. So it gives us this um, framework to discipline ourselves outside of our natural and desired tendencies to actually grow up and read with the church, first of all. But also, in these disciplines, listen, we can expect that exposing ourselves to prayer and reading the word of God will affect us. This is a hard part for me. I don't expect that reading scripture and praying is gonna get anything done, and so it's easy for me to jump over. I got a list. You should, I mean, I got stuff to do, right? Um, but if I truly believed and expected that God's word was living and active and that I live not by Sean's to-do list, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, if I really live on, dependent on that, then I will expose myself to daily prayer and reading scripture. So I, I encourage you, um, examine your own disciplines and don't do this out of guilt. And if you're in a place where you're like, oh, it's so tough, cut yourself some slack, okay. But what if God wants to speak to you and nourish you? What if, what if you're like not really living right now because you're not feeding on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Is there a, a fuller way to live? Yes, there is, and it's available to You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.